0: it's good to be together this morning that was a really special time of worship and beautiful to listen to and sing along with the uh, ladies that led us thank you for that and just as as the church sings together it's such a blessing as we open uh, the word this morning I want to begin by you know I went to high school in the in the 2000s all right so that was my decade and uh you know something that made high school in the 2000s much more dramatic than it needed to be? The introduction of the relationship status option on Facebook. I mean, high school's got enough drama, right? But now we have this relationship status option, and, and you couldn't really say that you were dating someone unless it was Facebook official, you know? Not until you got on Facebook and updated your status to in a relationship. Then, then you were really dating. Except for a few here and there, though, the thing is that most high school relationships don't last. And so at some point, you're going to have to change your relationship status, right? Well, Facebook especially added to the drama here because it wasn't just either in a relationship or single. There was another option. You guys might remember this other option. It, it was, it's complicated. Yeah, what could infuse more drama into a high schooler's day-to-day life then all of their friends seeing the day before school that their relationship status is now officially complicated. I think we should admit today, as a society, that social media relationship statuses are not a good idea. The whole world does not need to know the ins and outs of what's happening in our relationships. But with that said, and I say this tongue in cheek, our relationship status does matter to God. It does. God cares about our relationships. He cares about singleness. He cares about marriage. He cares about dating and engagement. He cares about divorce. He cares about those times in your life that are complicated. We know God cares about these things because God addresses these things in his word. And even more, Jesus has made these things matters of personal discipleship. Jesus addresses us specifically in our relationship status, and we're called to follow Jesus wherever we find ourselves. So you can open your Bibles to Matthew 19, this morning's passage is Matthew 19, verses 1 through 12. The title of the message is Marriage, Divorce, and Singleness. Listen to God's word to us this morning, Matthew 19, verses 1 through 12. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this same, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Our passage this morning begins with a subtle but significant change of scene. Matthew tells us in verse 1 that Jesus went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. So this is significant because Galilee was where the majority of Jesus' public ministry took place. It was his home base, so to speak. It was a quiet region in the northern part of Israel where Jesus was able to teach and to heal without a lot of controversy. Judea, on the other hand, was home to the capital city of Jerusalem, and it was home to the religious elite of Israel. Earlier in the book, Matthew told us that Jesus withdrew from Judea because the religious leaders had begun to plot against him. But now what we know is that Jesus' time is drawing near. He's told the disciples two times now that he must go back to Jerusalem. He must suffer many things at the hands of the leaders there. He must be killed and then be raised. And here in verse 1, we see Jesus leave Galilee for the last time and begin his journey back to Jerusalem, which ends ultimately in the cross. It brings a weight to this entire passage, doesn't it? It's no surprise then that, given all this background, that when Jesus gets to Judea, as soon as he's there, a group of Pharisees comes up to him. The Pharisees have been waiting for this opportunity, they've set themselves against Jesus because of his teaching and his ministry. Their leadership and their righteous status has been threatened before the people, and they want to destroy him. Here's the problem, though. Verse 2 tells us that large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. So, So how do you go about destroying someone who the people love without losing the people themselves? That's where they find themselves, and so they couldn't just do what they wanted to do to Jesus. The people would revolt against them, and so they had to find a way to trap him in his own words. And verse 3 tells us how they sought to do it. Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, this question might seem random to us, but it was a hotly debated question during the time of Jesus' ministry. There were several different rabbinical schools within Judaism. They gave different answers to this question based on how they read Deuteronomy 24. Some said, you can divorce your wife for any and every reason. Any any reason that you can find, you can divorce your wife. Others said, only for sexual immorality. But again, the reason the Pharisees asked Jesus is not because they actually want to know what he teaches. They want to trap him in his own words. This is like asking a politician today about a hotly contested issue in our culture where you know that they can't win. Someone's going to be offended by his answer. They're seeking to trap Jesus in his own words and to turn people against him. And yet, unlike politicians today, Jesus doesn't shy away from the question. The reason he doesn't shy away from it is simple, that these things matter to God. He doesn't shy away from it because God has spoken in his word on marriage and divorce. And therefore, regardless of what people thought, Jesus answers with the truth. Just as an aside, we need to be ready to follow his example in our day. When it comes to marriage and divorce, and even more fundamental matters, such as male and female, as we'll see, no matter how offensive our answers might be, we need to speak boldly where Scripture speaks clearly. And that's what Jesus does here. The Scripture speaks clearly on marriage and divorce, and so Jesus responds to their question. And he does it in three ways. First, first thing Jesus does is he upholds God's good design of marriage. Jesus upholds God's good design of marriage. So we live in a culture that's become cynical of the institution of marriage. Probably through our culture's attempts at redefining marriage and through the prevalence of failed marriages, divorce has become commonplace today. Well, the specific problems we encounter might be unique to our times But the overall situation is actually very similar to New Testament times. Marriage was undervalued and divorce was easy. And Jesus understood this dynamic. And so before he even answers their question about divorce, he goes further back to the goodness of marriage as God designed it. Listen, we must have a high view and a right view of marriage before we can even begin to answer questions about divorce. We must start with what God has designed marriage to be, and that's where Jesus starts. Look at verses 4 through 6. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So let's notice a few things from what Jesus says here in these verses. First, he reminds us that God designed the participants of marriage. God designed the participants of marriage. Before he even describes marriage itself, he goes even further back, all the way to creation itself, all the way back to Genesis 1. And he says that the creator God chose to create humans as male and female, as man and woman. We stand on that truth. That is Genesis 1 theology. Kevin DeYoung draws out the significance of this in his book, Men and Women in the Church. He asks, how often do we stop to think that it didn't have to be this way? God didn't have to make two different kinds of human beings. He didn't have to make us so that men and women, on average, come in different shapes and sizes and often think and feel in different ways. God could have propagated the human race in some other way besides the differentiated pair of male and female He could have made Adam sufficient without Eve, or he could have made an Eve without an Adam. But God decided not to make one man, or one woman, or a group of men and a group of women. He made a man and a woman. This whole wonderful, beautiful, complicated business of a two-sex humanity was God's idea. Not by accident, but by his good design. Why did God design male and female as a distinct and complementary pair? Why did he design it that way? Because of what Jesus says next, God designed the participants of marriage and then God ordained the union of marriage. He designed us as male and female, distinct and complementary to one another, in order to bring us together in marital unity. Jesus tells us what a marriage is. It is a God-ordained, lifelong union between one man and one woman. That's what we see created male and female And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. God ordained a lifelong union between one man and one woman. He called it marriage. The man leaves his father and mother. That is, he leaves his household. He leaves the home and the family that he grew up in as a child, and he holds fast to his wife. He cleaves to her. He takes her to himself, and he doesn't let go. And this leaving and holding fast is given expression In God's gift of the one flesh relationship. And listen, then Jesus says something that should floor us. Not only did God design the participants of marriage and then ordain the union of marriage, God is actually the one who accomplishes the reality of marriage. Do you see that in the passage? It's not just that God told Adam and Eve, here you are, I made you, now get married. God performs the wedding. God performs the wedding. He brought them together, what God has joined together. And though judges and pastors and others might officiate wedding ceremonies today, Jesus calls us to recognize the reality. God joins the man and wife together. Every marriage is the work of God. Your marriage is the work of God. He created its participants. He ordained your union. And as part of the larger fabric of his good creation in itself, it's for his glory and it's for our joy. Therefore, in light of God's good design for marriage, Jesus answers the question, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He says, what God has joined together, let no man separate. His teaching on marriage reveals that divorce goes against the pattern of divine design. We weren't created for divorce. Just as the train was designed to run on track, so man and woman were designed to experience God's blessing within the marriage covenant. Divorce is like taking the train off the tracks and trying to operate it on land. It's not what we were made for. We can be even more pointed than that. To go against the pattern of divine design is to go against the designer himself. In divorce, the created ones are saying to the creator, we know better than you. Our plans are better than yours. Your work is not good. We want something better. The one who separates what God has joined together, the one who rejects God's design and divorces his spouse, is rebelling against God himself, is liable to judgment. Now at this point you might be thinking what the Pharisees were thinking. Is Jesus teaching that divorce is always a sin? Is it always wrong to divorce? Let me immediately give you the answer and then we'll look at what he says. Divorce is always the result of sin. But not every divorce is sinful. Divorce is always the result of sin, but not every divorce is sinful. There is no divorce that isn't owing to the reality of our sin-broken hearts. But there are occasions in which God permits divorce in our fallen world. This leads us to the second way Jesus responds. Jesus limits the legitimate grounds for divorce. Jesus limits the legitimate grounds for divorce. So the Pharisees hear Jesus' statement, What God has joined together, let no man separate, and they immediately come back at Jesus by appealing to Moses in verse 7. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? In other words, how can you say a man should not divorce his wife when the law itself gives instruction on divorce? Surely if the law commands it, then it can't be wrong. Jesus' answer in verse 8 is very instructive for how we think about the law in general and divorce specifically. Verse 8, he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. So again, let's just notice a few things about what Jesus says here. First, he corrects their question. They said that Moses commanded divorce, but Jesus rightly says Moses allowed divorce. And that's different, right? A command and a permission are different things. If we go back to Deuteronomy 24, that's where the debate really lied. Here's what we don't see. If a wife does so and so, then a husband shall divorce her. We don't see that. If a husband does so and so, then a wife shall divorce him. There's no command there. Instead, what we see is quite different. The passage begins with a phrase, when a man divorces his wife. And it proceeds to give instructions about the situation from that point forward. And the point Jesus is making is simple. God never commands divorce. It's allowed, it's permitted, but it's never commanded. Second, Jesus teaches them that the law was written for hard-hearted people because of your hardness of heart. You see, the law was written to people who have been delivered from slavery in Egypt, but they had not been delivered from slavery to their own sin. The law was written to people that had experienced a saving event of the Lord, and he did choose them as his people, but they had yet to experience new hearts. They still had hard hearts that were bent against God. And we need to remember this when we read the law today. The law is not a timeless expression of God's will. The law was God's instrument of revealing his will to sinful people, and restraining their sin within the context of the fallen condition we find ourselves. This is why Paul wrote in 1 Timothy, We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners. What this means is that the law is not the highest standard for discerning answers about divorce. It was written to a fallen, hard-hearted people, and it restrained the exercise of their sin. Jesus reminds them of that. And third, Jesus reminds them that this entire discussion has taken place in a post-fall world. From the beginning, it was not so. Listen, we don't live in the beginning anymore. We don't live in Eden anymore. We live in a fallen world. And within that world, each of us is a sin-broken person. And divorce is a consequence in our world of that reality. Divorce was not part of God's good creational intention. So with all that said, in this post-fall world, are there any grounds for divorce? And here's what Jesus teaches as the new covenant standard in verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual morality, and marries another, commits adultery. So can a man divorce his wife for any reason? Can someone get divorced for any grounds they choose? I'm in love with someone else. I'm not happy anymore. This isn't what I pictured. We fight all the time. My spouse is unloving. Jesus says that none of these constitute grounds for divorce. And then he does give one legitimate ground, except for sexual immorality. Now this verse raises many questions, and this morning we're not going to be able to answer all of them. I do want to refer you back to my sermon from Matthew 5, 31 and 32, where we looked more thoroughly at Jesus' teaching on divorce in the Sermon on the Mount. In that sermon I answered four questions. How does God feel about divorce? On what grounds is divorce permissible? Is remarriage after divorce permissible? And what should you do to protect your marriage from divorce? We're not going to cover all those questions this morning, but I do want to encourage you to listen to it. If you've not, and love to speak with you about any of those questions you have, because these are matters that take time and wisdom and prayer to sort through. But for this morning, I just want to make two observations about the exception that Jesus gives. First, the reason that sexual morality constitutes grounds for divorce. Why? Why sexual morality? The reason is because it is a breaking of the one flesh union that lies at the heart of the marriage covenant. It's a breaking of the one flesh union that lies at the heart of the marriage covenant. So we think about marital unity, marital unity encompasses much more than marital intimacy. Marriage is more than physical union, but Marital intimacy is the sacred representation of unity. That intimate relationship, that one flesh relationship, represents what God has done. It is the sacred gift of God in marriage that represents the unity of your marriage. And so for a spouse to engage in intimacy with someone else is in effect to renounce their marriage covenant. That is an action that renounces the unity of the marriage. It's, It's an action that breaks the covenant. It is in itself the act of separating what God has joined together. Divorce is permissible in this case because the act of separating has already been done by the offending spouse. In that immorality, they have separated. That's the first thing to understand. That's why this grounds is given. But second, as in the law, Jesus merely permits divorce on these grounds. He does not command it. See, Jesus actually carved out his own path in the debate. Because one side said, for any and every reason, the other side not only permitted divorce on adulterous grounds, the the other side commanded it. Jesus does not command divorce on these grounds. He permits it. Further, through his new covenant work on the cross, we have been given a new heart. We are not... In the same situation that Israel was when they received the law because of their hard-heartedness and had these commands given we've been given a new heart we're indwelt by the Spirit of God we're motivated by the love of Christ because of what he's done for us we have a new gospel oriented mission for our lives we are people who deny ourselves take up our crosses and follow Jesus we are people who forgive because we've been forgiven we are those who love others as Jesus loved us even while we were his enemies All of this brings a framework to a spouse's decision when there's been unfaithfulness. What Jesus has done for us informs what we do. Which means this, that the sexual morality of a spouse does not necessitate the dissolution of a marriage. The gospel is powerful enough to heal and redeem broken marriages. And in light of God's good purposes for us in marriage, we should always do everything we can toward that end. Leon Morris captures the tone of his teaching very well in his commentary. Listen to what he writes. Jesus invites his hearers to reflect on what the law actually means and to recognize the sanctity of marriage. The fact that divorce was possible did not mean that it was to be sought. Rather, it was to be seen as a desperate last resort. Every effort must be made to save a marriage. So to review, the Pharisee's question was, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? First, Jesus upholds God's good design for marriage. He says, what God has joined together, let no man separate. That's our default initial position. Second, Jesus limits the legitimate grounds for divorce by permitting it only in the case of sexual morality. Now, as Jesus has interacted with the Pharisees on these things, his disciples have been there listening in. And in these last few verses, they enter the scene with their own objection of sorts. Please to Jesus' final response. Jesus commends the kingdom alternative of singleness. Jesus commends the kingdom alternative of singleness. Upon hearing his teaching about marriage and divorce, the disciples' response in verse 10 is kind of surprising and very revealing The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. A little surprising, isn't it? What it does is it reveals the cultural attitude that was prevalent toward marriage and divorce. The disciples didn't view marriage as a weighty, God-designed, God-ordained, God-accomplished reality that was never to be broken. And so when they hear Jesus teach it that way, their response is, so you're saying there's no way out. So they're saying, you're saying there's no way out? You're saying once you get married, you have to stay married forever? It'd be better to stay single than to be stuck in a marriage that's hard. Well, if their claim is surprising, Jesus' response is even more surprising. We might expect him to correct the claim and say, you guys have it all wrong, marriage is wonderful, you should want to be married. But that's not what he says. Instead, he essentially tells them this. You know you don't have to get married right? There is an alternative. It's called being single. That's what he does. Let's look at what he says in verse 11. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it's given. When Jesus says not everyone can receive this saying, the saying he's referring to is what the disciples just said. It's better not to marry. In these verses, Jesus says, not everyone can say it's better not to marry, but only those to whom it's given. He's discussing the alternative of singleness, the gift of singleness. This leads to verse 12, where Jesus refers to a group of people known as eunuchs, which I admit makes all of us men in the room just squirm a little bit. For those who haven't heard of the term, I'll just say that a eunuch is a man who's had his physical capability for intimacy taken away. And here's what Jesus says For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have made, been made eunuchs by men. Jesus says that some are born this way, referring to the tragic reality that we live in a fallen world with fallen bodies, and some don't develop the way that they were meant to. Then he says that some were made this way by men. He refers to the ancient practice of eunuchs serving in the chambers of female royal officials. But then Jesus says something that would have absolutely shocked the disciples. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Now, I do not believe that Jesus is speaking literally in this verse. Instead, Jesus is answering the disciples' claim, it's better not to marry by commending the one who renounces his right to marry in order to devote himself more fully to the kingdom of God. He's commending the one who renounces his right to marry in order to devote himself more fully to the kingdom of God. And this is, in fact, what the Apostle Paul did. He writes about it in 1 Corinthians 9. Do we not have the right to take a law on a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Well, it's interesting to note in that verse that apparently the other apostles, the ones who back here are saying it's better not to marry, apparently they got married eventually. But Paul didn't. Paul was one of those who received the gift of God, who received the alternative. He had a right to marry, but he didn't. Why not? Well, a few chapters earlier in 1 Corinthians 7, he says this, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. The unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. See, neither Jesus nor Paul are saying that singleness is a more spiritual state than marriage. This isn't a matter of maturity, it's a matter of calling. It's the gift of God. What they are saying is that single people, by virtue of being free from the responsibilities that come with having a spouse and children, they're free to devote themselves more fully to personal holiness and gospel advancement. Paul renounced marriage because of his calling to be on the move, constantly in danger, taking the gospel to the unreached around the Roman Empire. And Jesus commends decisions like this. When the disciples say, it's better not to marry, he says, well, consider the alternative. You you could remain unmarried. That could be God's gift to you, and you could use that singleness to devote yourself to the kingdom. He commends that to them. This morning, if you're unmarried, consider how you can leverage your singleness for the pursuit of holiness. Consider how you can leverage your singleness for the advancement of the gospel. You have so much freedom as a single person that you can use now. Prayerfully consider, if this is where God has you, how you can advance the kingdom in this state of your life. Whether God has a change for you in the future or not. Is it your gift? Well, it is until he gives you a desire, an opportunity to marry, and then you prayerfully consider that. But leverage your singleness for the sake of the gospel now. Paul was not the only person in the New Testament who renounced marriage for the sake of the kingdom. Jesus himself did. Think about the Son of God, through whom all things were made, including male and female. He became a man. Fully man. And as a man, Jesus embraced singleness. Jesus lived a single life. In embracing singleness, he poured out his life for others. He constantly traveled through the land of Israel. He proclaimed the kingdom. He taught the scriptures. He healed sicknesses. He cast out demons. He lived with his 12 disciples. He constantly invested in them. And then, as a single man, he went to Jerusalem, and he suffered, and he died on a cross. And here's why he did this. He was laying down his life for his bride his people. He was laying down his life for us, Redeemer, for his church. Listen, we are not some lovely bride. We are not the kind of bride that someone would intuitively lay down their lives for. According to the word of God, we are the spiritual adulterers. According to the word of God, we are the ones who forsook our husband and went after other gods. We were unfaithful to him. We rejected him. And still, while we were spiritual adulterers, Christ loved us and died for us so that he could present us to himself as a pure and spotless bride in eternity. So whatever your relationship status is today, follow Christ in it. Honor Christ in it. Knowing that one day, every marriage will give way to the eternal marriage of Christ in the church. One day there will be no more divorce because Christ will hold fast to us forever. One day singleness will be no more as all of us will belong forever to him. That's what all this points to. Whatever state we find ourselves in, we can honor Christ in it as the one that we are hoping in and waiting for. Father, we come to you and we pray that you would help us to embrace the calling you have for each of us to embrace your good design and to embrace your gracious work and to embrace a life that is not for ourselves but for your son Jesus who left heaven, came here, took on our humanity, died in our place, rose again from the dead, all to present us to himself as a spotless bride. Help us to rejoice that one day we will share together in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Help us in every calling and state we find ourselves in to point others to Jesus by the way that we conduct ourselves. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.